Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We're going to begin our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and we will begin by going through the entire first chapter together this morning. And as you turn there, I'm going to give to you a little bit of context. The tale is quite thrilling. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, Paul... Silvanus or Silas, same guy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy go to the great port city of Thessalonica. And there they go into the synagogue, and for three-ish weeks, Paul reasons in the synagogue. He preaches the gospel and explains and proves that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and believed the gospel bore fruit. Prominent women of the city believed. Jews believed. Greeks believed. But evil was not so easily extinguished. Thessalonica was a city full of false gods and false worship. It was a city that even had within it Jews full of jealousy. And it was these Jews who gathered to themselves some who are called wicked men of the rabble, who then formed a mob and set the city into an uproar. They dragged Jason, who was likely Paul and Silas and Timothy's host, before the magistrate They made accusations. They said, Jason is with these men who have turned the world upside down, and they've come here also. They understood that this Christianity was turning their city in a direction they didn't want to go in. They levied the charge that Jason and his fellows were calling Jesus king rather than Caesar, And so, bond was paid, Jason and those with him were released, and they went home and immediately sent Paul and Silas and Timothy away to Berea under the cover of darkness. To this point, when we get to 1 Thessalonians, Paul and Silas have not returned, even though they wanted to, they were hindered by Satan. But when they could not bear it any longer, they couldn't bear knowing how things turned out. They didn't know. This is a time before phones and internet. Communication is very hard. And so they went on to Berea and continued moving on from one town to the next, proclaiming the gospel. And they never did figure out what happened to that little baby church that they'd only been at for about a month in Thessalonica. Paul worried what had become of them. And so they sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. And then Timothy came back to Paul and Silas and said, you're not going to believe this. The church has been persecuted, yes, but the root of faithfulness has not been severed. It's amazing what God is doing in Thessalonica. It's at that point that Paul, together with Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, picked up their pen and they wrote this book. And so with that context... Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. May He carve its eternal truth on our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your day, the heavenly ordinance of rest, the open door of worship, the record of Jesus' resurrection, the seal of the Sabbath to come, the day when saints militant and saints triumphant unite in endless song. We bless you for the throne of grace, that here your free favor reigns that open access to your favor is through the blood of Jesus, that the veil is torn aside and we can enter the holiest of holies and find you ready to hear, waiting to be gracious, inviting us to pour out our needs, encouraging our desires, promising to give to us more than we can ask or think. Oh Lord, give us this day in rich abundance all the blessings of this Lord's Day, all the blessings it was designed to impart. May our hearts be fast bound against worldly thoughts or cares, flood our minds with peace beyond understanding, allow our meditations to be sweet, our acts of worship to be life, liberty, and joy. Give to us the drink of the streams that flow from your throne. Give us the food of your precious word. This we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Greetings in letters are easy to skip over, but some are more arresting than others. You know, you get a letter from someone that says, 
to whom it may concern. That, that's sort of boring and you have to you know, force yourself to read the rest of the way a little bit. Sometimes, though, you get somebody's attention. Uh, to the love of my life. Right? Oh, now you've got my attention. Or maybe if you're a parent and you have a child in school, to the parent of. Oh, now, now I'm listening. Paul gives us a gripping introduction to his letter here. And that might not be immediately apparent to you at first because you're used to reading Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. But listen, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they're writing the, the, this book together, this letter together, to the church of the Thessalonians. And here it is, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians at the very beginning of this letter that because they have received the grace of God through the Son of God, by the work of the Spirit of God, they have peace. They are not only in Thessalonica, geographically, they are spiritually in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their status has fundamentally changed. That's what Paul is ultimately going to give thanks about in this first chapter. The whole chapter revolves around Paul's thanksgiving, and what he is giving thanks for is the real conversion of the Thessalonians. They have turned from the worship of idols to the living God. And Paul wants to give thanks, and he's reminding them here, you are in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is giving thanks for these, this triad of virtues that is clear in the lives of the Thessalonians. It does strike us as a little bit weird early on as children of the Reformation. Often we, we, we say, you know, sola fide, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so sometimes we develop an unfortunate allergy against the idea of the work that faith produces. But Paul undoes that here. He, he unashamedly puts these word pairs together to undermine some of our confusion. He says, We're, I'm giving thanks for your work of faith. That's faith which produces this work. Your labor of love. Their, their love for the Lord results in their work of love for God and for one another. We don't, we don't think you know, of love in our culture as, as work or as a labor, as toil, do we? I think in our culture, uh, love is it's easy. You fall into it, you fall out of it, it just happens to you. But those of us who have children know that love is indeed a labor. Ask my wife if she has to work to love me, and she will say amen and amen. They labor in love. And then this last one, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their steadfastness, their endurance, and the persecutions that have come upon them are inspired by their hope in the resurrection to come. And so we have faith, hope, love, 
primary Christian virtues. What is a Christian made of? Faith, hope, love. And you'll notice that Paul messes up the order here, and you go, well, why is that? Doesn't he know it's faith, hope, love, and not faith, love, hope? Elsewhere he writes faith, hope, love. Why is it different here? And it's my contention that he is sort of forecasting for us what he's going to do in this letter. See, first, he's going to give thanks for the faith of the Thessalonians. It's going to take three-ish chapters. Then, he's going to encourage them to demonstrate their love for the Lord in obedience to his commandments. That's chapter four-ish. And then, finally, he's going to address, everybody loves eschatology, right? Big, big word, the end times, right? He's going to address the return of Christ, He's going to tell them about where their hope ought to be rooted and what that hope looks like. He's writing to give them comfort and encouragement. He's going to talk about faith, love, and then hope. He says, I give thanks for the virtues that are visible in you. A couple weeks ago, Lucas preached to us that parable of the soils. You remember, the seed that falls in the good soil, how do you know that it's fallen in the good soil? Well, it it produces fruit, lots of it. And Paul says these qualities, faith, hope, and love, are not invisible. I can see them in you. They're evidence that the Word of God has taken root in you and that the character of Christ is being formed in you. I give Thanks. Brothers and sisters, are these traits, faith, hope, and love, visible in your life? Are they visible in our church? I believe that they are, and they are an occasion for us to give thanks to God for His work in and among us. He has made First Baptist Church a church to be thankful for. That's our main idea this morning. I didn't mention it at the beginning. That's my error, but we're going to clean it up now. This main idea that I want you to walk out with today is that First Baptist Church of Waynesboro is a church to be thankful for. We can be thankful for First Baptist because of how the Word comes to us, is received by us, and rings out from us. And so in the same way that Paul gives thanks for the faith, love, and hope of the Thessalonians, we want to make this Sunday an occasion to give thanks to God for the faith, love, and hope that exist here at First Baptist. But notice, Paul does give thanks to God for their works of faith. He knows that ultimately this good fruit is produced by God Himself. He grounds His reason for thanksgiving in verse 4. Listen, He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. And so He's saying, I know that this faith, hope, and love is in you because I know that God has loved you and chosen you. This is great encouragement. You understand that if you are a Christian, it's not because you performed well on a test. It's not because you are smarter than other people. It's not because 
you are better looking than other people. It is because God loved you and chose to save you, to bring you from death to life, to make you as one who sees when once you were blind. He gives you ears that you might hear and believe the gospel. He loves you because he loves you. That is great comfort. It's important. Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that God is sovereign in their salvation. That God holds them fast in his mighty hand. That they are his. He wants this truth in their bones. He wants them to know that they belong to God just as much as Israel of old. Imagine he has in his mind Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Moses speaking to the people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Because you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. God loves and chooses his people. If you are a Christian, God loves you and has chosen you and you are his treasured possession. Paul wants this to be a pillow of assurance and encouragement in your life. He wants in your Christian life for you to have the power and work of God front and center. And he fronts that idea, that doctrine, he puts it right here out in front of the book of 1 Thessalonians. He does the same thing in Ephesians. If you remember Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to us, you are loved and chosen by God. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Before there was time, God thought of you. Before the world began, God loved you. Before you drew breath into your lungs, God had chosen you to be saved out of death and unto eternal life. And the reason that he loves you is because he loves you. He loves you and has chosen you. And you cannot lose that love. It is an electing love. Only electing love can be unconditional. God loves you, Christian, not because of the fruit you bear, but because of who you are. 
He loves you because you are His. That is great comfort. God loves you and shows you. You cannot lose His love. You did not earn it, and you cannot lose it. Non-Christian, I have good news for you this morning. This electing love of God is something that we know in retrospect, not in prospect of coming to faith in Christ. What I mean by that is that the redeeming love of God belongs to all who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Paul's going to outline how he knows that the Thessalonians were chosen and loved by God. He's going to give three reasons. But you'll see that last one sort of sums up all of them in verse, verses 9 and 10. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. If you don't know Christ this morning, you can. The Word of God is being proclaimed to you. It's coming to you this morning as it once came to the Thessalonians. I pray that you will receive it, be changed by it, and that it will ring out from you in faith. Non-Christian, repent and believe. Because apart from Christ... Your sins have earned the judgment and wrath of God. You will pay. There is a wrath coming. And only those who take refuge in the blood of the Lamb will escape it. Only those who trust in Christ will be delivered from the wrath to come. Believe, repent. If you want to know what that looks like, you can talk to any member of this church, any pastor of this church. You can talk to me. We love to talk about Jesus. My hope and my prayer is that God would be bringing you to life this morning. Paul assures the Thessalonians of God's love for them. He's giving thanks for God's work in them. And then he does answer that question. He goes, you know how I know that you are loved by God? You know I know that you've been chosen by God? You know how I know that your faith, love, and hope are the result of God's work in you? Verse 5, because, this is exhibit A, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's exhibit A. The word came to you with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or full assurance. I can't, we're going to take a sidebar here. I can't resist it. Did you notice the Trinitarian shape of the front end of this letter? You've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all together there. It's really neat. It reminds us that the gospel is Trinitarian in nature. The Holy Trinity is at work in salvation. Remember, fundamentals of Christian belief, we worship one God who exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, 
God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all accomplish our salvation. God the Father loves and chooses His people. He sends God the Son to take on flesh and die as a substitute for all who will repent of sin and trust in Him. And the Holy Spirit applies redemption to God's people and indwells them. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, that we who were outside of God's family have been brought in. The good news of the gospel is that God, who is Himself eternally Father, eternally Son, and eternally the Holy Spirit, has become for us who believe our adoptive Father, the incarnate Son, and the outpoured Holy Spirit. The good news of the gospel comes to us from the whole of the Godhead. Our God is amazing. He has planned to save us. That's the good news that came from the lips of Paul and Silas and Timothy. That sinners can be saved because of the work of God if they will repent and believe. You'll notice when they preached, this word came not just as mere words, but as a message empowered by the Holy Spirit. They spoke it with full conviction of its truth as they saw it take root in the hearts and lives of the Thessalonians. It's interesting. We must use words if we are to proclaim the gospel. I think one of the quotes or proverbs that has done the most damage in the contemporary church is that one that's sometimes ascribed to, I think it's St. Francis of Assisi. I probably got it wrong. Uh, But he said something like, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And on the face of it, that sounds very profound. Ah, yes. But if you think about it, it's really dumb. It's sort of like saying, we draw circles, but not lines. It's actually not that profound. Or, this is my favorite example, breathe at all times. If necessary, use oxygen. It doesn't make sense. The gospel must come with words. Faith comes by hearing. No one has become a Christian because somebody preached the gospel at all times without words. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, imagine it with me. You have Christian Bob, we'll call him, and Christian Bob goes to his nine-to-five job at his office every day for 20 years. He lives a really good life. Everybody believes it. You know what's not going to happen? One day, Bob's coworker Jim, is not going to roll up to him and say, Bob, I noticed that you have lived a really good life. You don't steal paper clips. You don't spend too much time at the water cooler. You're really nice. Therefore, I want to repent of my sins. I want to give up my hatred for God, and I want to place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to submit my life to Him. I want to be baptized. Can you help me find a church that I can join? That doesn't happen. 
Because the gospel is news that must be declared. I'm not telling you not to live a godly life. Live a godly life. But also preach the word. Tell people why you endeavor to live a godly life. If anyone is to be saved, the word must be proclaimed. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. First Baptist, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, we want to be a church that faithfully proclaims the word of God, the message of the cross. We understand that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. We want to give ourselves to trusting the power of God's word and God's Holy Spirit. Some of you have told me, I'm praying for you since I've come. We've been praying for you. Some have asked, how can we pray for you? Here's a good answer to that question. Pray that the preaching from this pulpit would come with great power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Whether I am the one proclaiming it or one of the other pastors here, pray that First Baptist would be a church that is centered on the Word of God, that believes in the power of the Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit of God. Pray that we would preach it with full conviction, unashamedly, because we believe it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We've got to use words to preach the gospel. And it is the word of the gospel that came to the Thessalonians and took root in them. So Paul says, we know that God has loved you and chosen you because our gospel came to you in word and power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then he comes to the second reason in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of of the Holy Spirit. That is exhibit B, that they received the word joyfully in affliction. They understood that there was a cost for following Christ. That following Christ wasn't about their temporary prosperity, but about their eternal well-being. They understood that it was going to be hard. Those that they heard it from were chased out of town, had to leave under the cover of darkness. So when they believe it, they're believing it because it's true. Another brother shared with me a story recently of a pastor who, who went to Africa and stood before a large group and preached the gospel. Afterwards, milling around, he became discouraged because no one responded to the message. And as he was praying to the Lord, trying to sort out what exactly was going on, a young man came down to him and said, I would like to become a Christian. And so the pastor shared with him 
all the ins and outs of what it means to follow Jesus. He stressed that we have to count the cost before we follow Christ. As he talked, it became apparent to him that this was not the first time the young man had heard the gospel. And so he asked him, it's clear to me that you have heard this message before. That you have thought of becoming a Christian before. But why is it that today you have chosen to follow Christ? The young man who had been drawing circles in the dirt with his foot throughout the conversation put his head down and replied, My father has told me he will beat me if I become a Christian. Tonight I shall bleed. understood the cost of following Christ. The Thessalonians understood the cost of following Christ. They they paid it at the front end. Are you willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus? Some of us are Pretty unwilling to even make Sunday morning a priority in our lives. If you're coming to church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening begrudgingly, what makes you think that you would be ready to bleed to follow Jesus? We should be ready to pay the cost. Some of us have begun paying the cost, not not by way of physical persecution, but by way of social persecution. It's funny, sometimes we separate the two, but really Jesus told us to expect to be slandered by way, I'm sorry, to be persecuted by way of slander. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Joy in affliction, joy in persecution magnifies Christ. It enables others to see that we believe this message not because it is going to bring us all sorts of benefits in the short term, but because it is true. Are you unshakably joyful when slandered for your Christianity, church? Do you receive the word with joy, even when living it out means that you will be an outcast socially? Young folks, I still like to put myself in this category sometimes, I try. But in mind here, I have, you know, your high school students, so high schoolers, college students, young professionals. Are you ready to joyfully suffer for the gospel? How do you respond when you are called a bigot by your peers for holding to a Christian sexual ethic? Have you steeled yourself to respond with joy 
because others call you a prude because of your commitment to modest dress and virginity until marriage? Do you respond to those things with joy? Because Christianity has fallen out of favor in our culture, you must resolve now to stand firm and to stand happy against the world that hates you. You must resolve to rejoice and be glad when all kinds of evil is uttered against you falsely. It's not just for young people church, even though I think that's where the pressure is the hardest in our culture. It's for all of us. If we are to be faithful in receiving the word, we must bear the fruit of faith consistently. We must be willing to be ostracized socially. Be willing to receive the word joyfully in affliction. Church, when we endure persecution, we prove ourselves loved and chosen by God. When the fruit of our faith does not rot beneath the cold persecution of culture, we prove that it is real. The Thessalonians received the word with joy, even though it cost them something. Paul says this is evidence that you are loved and chosen by God. Also notice he points out that they became imitators. You see that in verse 6? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul and Silas and the others are those who had been put in prison and were singing hymns at midnight. They were chased out of Thessalonica and yet they persisted in faith. They were examples worthy of imitation. It says you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Think of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Examples worth following. Verse 6, I think, reminds us of the importance of having good examples in our lives. And in the church, this is what pastors are supposed to be. This is what I am supposed to be, an example worth following. Our pastors should be able to say, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, we should be able to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And pastors are called to set the pace for the church to set an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. I mean, Hebrews 13 actually commands Christians, church members, to follow the lead of their leaders. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Brother pastors, are you living a life worth imitating? Other church leaders, deacons, is your life worth imitating? Are you setting an example in service to the church, care for others, and support of the elders? Are you living lives worthy of imitation? It's not just for pastors and, and deacons. 
It's for church members. It's for all of us should endeavor to, to imitate others and to set an example ourselves. Fathers, you are the shepherd of your household. Are you setting a good example? Are you leading your family into spiritual maturity or spiritual woe? And would your family be better off spiritually if they did everything that you do? You you can set the example for your family. Really easy things. Making the Lord's Day a priority in your life. What you do on Sunday morning in this hour It declares what's most important to you in your life. You want to teach your kid what's most important to you? Be here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And it will proclaim to them Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that Jesus Christ is Lord in your life and he's Lord of the Lord's Day and he's Lord of the entire week. You want to set the tone in your family. Lead family worship. It's important. It can be intimidating, but look around. There are many of you men are doing this. You're setting a good example. You're leading family devotions. Keep on keeping on. But if you're having trouble with this, look, find another brother who's leading worship in his household and ask him for help. You can ask me for help. Really, a good idea would be to reach out to Lucas. He has all kinds of good resources he can give you. He can even tie you in at the youth building. If you're a parent, he would love to have you there, help equip you to lead your family. It doesn't have to be complicated. You sit down at dinner, You open the book of Matthew, you read a few verses, talk about it to the best of your ability, you pray, maybe sing a song. It doesn't have to be a long song, you just do the doxology right quick. It's 10 minutes. It will change the life of your family. It will change the life of your household. Fathers, are you shepherding your family? Mothers, are you teaching your children? Are you living in such a way as to make the gospel attractive? No, a lot of moms have a lot of things to do. Many, many of you mothers are primarily responsible not only for the care of your children, but for all of those tasks around the house that pile up laundry and dishes and all the rest. It's so easy to make those secondary things primary things. Is it clear, mothers, to those who are around you that Jesus Christ is your priority? Make time to make it clear that Jesus is your priority. Some of you are more seasoned. That's a nice way of saying older. You're you're older men. You're older women. You have a lot to give. You can set an example to younger believers. Love and Titus, older women teach younger women, right? We want to be teaching one another, pouring into one another, setting an example of what it means to follow Jesus. Children, did you know? I know kids, you're here. If you're a kid, all right, kids, listen now, this is your time. Tune back in for a second. Kids, you can honor mommy and daddy and you can honor the Lord Jesus by obeying your parents. You can set a good example for your siblings 
and for other children by simply obeying all the way, right away, with a happy heart. You can do this. This is for you too, children. You can set an example. All of us should be looking for someone to imitate in the Christian life. There's plenty of godly examples around here. And all of us should be considering how we can be an example in the Christian life. That's what the Thessalonians have done. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then look at verse 7, and that's going to be exhibit C for you. Verse 7, you became imitators of us and of the Lord so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth or rang out from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Word came to the Thessalonians, in power, with full conviction, with the Holy Spirit. It was received by the Thessalonians joyfully in the midst of affliction as they followed the example of Paul and others. And now it rings out from, not the Philippians, the Thessalonians, it rings out from the Thessalonians. They went from imitators to examples. Exhibit C is that the word came to you, was received by you, and now it rings out from you. The word for rings out or sounds forth is it's a fun word. In other literature of the era, it was used to describe a clap of thunder or a rumor that ran about everywhere. Think of this ringing bell. Their faith has sounded forth, the word sounds forth from them as the story of their conversion is gossiped. The word goes forth from them as missionaries are sent. The word rings out from the Thessalonians. They are known as a church that receives the word and has it ring out from them. What is First Baptist Church of Waynesboro, Georgia known for? Churches, churches can be known for a lot of things. Now, that's the church with the fog machine. That's the church with the cool music. That's the church that they dress down on Sundays. That's the church that dresses up on Sundays. Churches can be known for the size of their congregation, the size of the parking lot, for their kids' program, for their coffee bar. What, what are we known for? Maybe a better question. What do we want to be known for? I hope that we want to be known as a Christ-exalting, word-centered church, as the kind of church that rings forth with the Word of God. I hope that we're the kind of church that when somebody asks, what does a Christian look like? The answer would come, if you want to know what a Christian looks like, 
you should go to First Baptist Church of Waynesboro. That's what Christianity looks like. Those people are Jesus people. They're the kind of people that the Word has come to. They're the kind of people that receive the Word. And they're the kind of people that the Word rings forth from. Does the Word ring forth from this church? I always say that people are natural evangelists for the things that they love. You you love football, you talk about football, love music, you talk about music, you love, you know, Pineland Bakery and Wagon Barn. You talk about Pineland Bakery and Wagon Barn. Lots of you talk about Pineland Bakery. I've started to myself. I like it. You talk about what you love. Do we love the Word of God? Does it naturally ring out from us? Friends, we should be a people who ring out with the Word of God. We came to 1 Thessalonians as the first book to work through together for for a few reasons, but not because it's the most arresting book in the New Testament, but for two primary reasons. One is it is a book that is full of thanksgiving and encouragement. And who doesn't need more encouragement? And two, because early on here, Paul lays out the main things that a church ought to be about. It's a good blueprint. Preach Christ, receive Christ, share Christ, so that in everything Christ might be preeminent. My hope is that that's what would happen here. We would be a church that bears the fruit of faith, love, and hope. A church that is clearly loved and chosen by God. It's evident because of the way the Word has come to us, the way the Word is preached from our pulpit, the way the Word is received by us, and the way that the Word rings out from us. Friends, I think these things are true of us. First Baptist Church is a church to be thankful for. Let us, verse 2, it's the main idea this morning, let us give thanks for First Baptist Church and what God has done here and what He will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that it does not return void. We pray that you would use it to remind us of our union to Christ and to one another. We pray that you would use it to inspire us on towards good deeds and love. We ask that you would hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. That you would continually put before us the hope of the resurrection to come. We pray that daily as we slip into sin that you would call us to yourself again. Help us to repent, to turn from idols, and to serve you, and to wait for your Son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.